take a look at a couple people that are actually in very desperate situations. Um, you know, a lot of times people talk about having faith and how that's important, and the honest truth is it's also important what you have faith in. Just to be a person of faith won't do you any good if the person you're trusting doesn't have the power and isn't able to help. It's so important that we know who we're trusting and leaning on. I read the story of a, of a family that had a baby girl, and when she was about a few weeks old, she began to get sick, and she developed some kind of an eye infection. So they went to their family doctor who was not there. He was out of town. And so they went to another man, and this man looked at the baby, and then he prescribed hot mustard poultices to be applied to her eyes. And it turned out that that man wasn't actually a doctor at all. He, I mean, he was a charlatan. He traveled around and pretended to be a doctor. And this treatment that he's prescribed for this baby girl actually blinded her. I mean, if you put your trust in the wrong person, if you put your trust in the wrong thing, it can be absolutely devastating. Well, as soon as he was discovered, he disappeared. Now, the amazing story of this little girl is her life is one of the most consequential lives in American uh, hymn writing. Her name is Fanny Crosby. She's actually an ancestor of Bing Crosby. Did you know that? Fanny Crosby probably wrote more hymns than any other writer. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. In fact, she wrote so many, she started using... Uh, pseudonames because she didn't want to crowd up the hymnals with everything from Fanny Crosby. Some of these hymns you may recognize, Blessed Assurance, The Old Rugged Cross, Rescue the Perishing, To God Be the Glory, Praise Him, Praise Him, and I Am Thine, O Lord, are just a few, some that I resonate with and remember. This was a woman who persevered through great adversity, but the start of her life was so sad because they trusted in some guy who pretended to be a doctor and he wasn't. So the question for everyone in this room is not if you ever will find yourself in a desperate time or space, but what are you going to do when life gets really difficult, when you have this sense of desperation? Because life is full of hardship and sickness and hurt. And of course, death faces everyone who's ever been born. And today we're going to look at a couple of desperate people. And their response was, they decided that they were going to put their faith and trust in a man named Jesus Christ. That Mark declares at the beginning of his gospel, he is the son of God. He was bringing in the kingdom of heaven. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually amazed when I talk to people how that some people uh, like bet their future and eternity on ideas that they even themselves describe as I, I you know I saw this in a movie and they're referencing a Disney movie I mean seriously you're gonna you are going to get your understanding of Life, death, resurrection, forgiveness of sin from the movies? 
from your friend who hadn't studied anything. Well, it's so important. What do, you, what do you know is true? Where are you getting your truth? I had a guy in my small group one night, uh, and I, I just love this guy. He was awesome. Um, as we sat around and were discussing a particular passage, he said, well, you know, I can't remember if I heard this in the movies or it's part of the Bible. I loved his honesty. It was so good. That's an important thing to figure out, though. Where are you getting your truth? Mark writes about a man named Jesus, and he says he was the son of God. And then he begins to tell stories that describe his character, his power, and his mission. And so in this passage, we read about the two people in desperate situations. So let's begin with the desperate father in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue, named Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged on him. So the first person in this story is this father, and he's got a sick little girl. Some of the most be- desperate times of my life have been when I have had a sick child. I mean, it, it is so hard. You're helpless. You don't know what to do. I've cried out to God in desperation. Please help my sick child. That's what this man is doing. It says a little bit about him. He is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, that means that Jairus was well-known in his community. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was a rabbi or a teacher, but he was definitely the administrator of the synagogue. I mean, that's the place of worship. That's where people congregated to worship together. Uh, He took care of the building, took care of all the details regarding a a building. I mean, Logan talked about how we gotta take care of the details, right? this guy, that's what, that was his role. Most importantly, he was to be the caretaker of the scrolls. The scrolls were at the center of their worship. This is where they got their teaching from. And the, this guy, in his role as the ruler of the synagogue, was actually not supposed to be following Jesus because the religious leaders had already decided that Jesus was a blasphemer. I mean, he, here he is demonstrating incredible power. And he even, I mean, he's got as much power as God has, it seems. But they decide they don't like Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. I mean, he didn't follow all of their rules and regulations. They were so bound by their religious system and their rules and the regulations that were outside of Scripture that they were mad at the guy for doing good things like healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and then they, begin to, they, be, they, they decided that Jesus was a blasphemer and because of that, he should be killed. And Jairus worked for this group. And so you see, it was so significant for Jairus in this moment of desperation to decide, I know this could make me lose my job. I know this could put our family in a, in, in a deep, bad situation. But my baby girl is dying. And there's only one person I know who's close who could possibly heal her 
His name is Jesus, and he has power, and he's compassionate. And I'm going to do it because I have nowhere else to go. He demonstrates a radical and costly faith, not just an ill-defined faith, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And he runs and he falls down in front of Jesus. And he tells him, Jesus, my daughter is so sick. I can see her life slipping away. Would you please come to my house and put your hands on her and heal her so she won't die? If you're a parent here and you put yourself in that spot, those are one of the most desperate moments of your life. You know, I remember when James was born, He's not here today because he's sick, so I can talk freely. So, but when James was born, we had no idea that he would have Down syndrome. We didn't know much about Down syndrome at all. He was born. The doctors did sort of a clinical evaluation, and they looked at the markers and said, yeah, we think your son has Down syndrome. And I refused to believe it. I was, I was so broken. I was so, man, I was mad at God. I was not a good man. I, I, it was so painful. I just hated to think that my son would grow up and, and his life would be so difficult. And I prayed the greatest prayers you'd ever heard. I prayed that God would heal him. But then my wife, who is this incredible mother, began to pick up on the fact that it didn't matter what his diagnosis was because he was born at seven pounds, but within six weeks, he was down to four point something. And she said to me, Eddie, this baby of ours, it doesn't matter what he has. He's dying in our arms. I don't know what to do. Her mother was actually the pastor's secretary in this church until so we told her. It wasn't long till I got a call from Pastor Rogers, long distance to the Philippines. And he says, Eddie, I hear your baby is not well. I think you need to bring him back here to see if we can get him some help. And then I got a call from Mark Johnson, who was part of the missions committee. And he says, hey, Eddie, the missions committee has voted that we know you probably don't have the money to fly back to the States, so we're going to help you with the expense of coming back with your son, James. I remember I was in the shower after he said that. And I was going through this feeling like, wow, will people even care about my son? I mean, it, will they accept him? Will they be freaked out by him? Were they? And um, when Mark said, hey, <laughs> your home church is going to help fly you guys back because what that said to me was, he is so valuable even to us. We'll take him like he is and help him get well. I remember we got on the plane and Coco was with us. She was just four years old at the time. and She was our comic relief, I think, you know, because we were so sad and she was so cute. And Cindy says, I don't think we can hold James in our arms for the 16 hours because he's so 
time. He'll be so bruised. So we put him on a pillow. And she carried him on a pillow. We, we flew from Manila to, to Seoul and got off the plane. And she looked to me as we sat there and she, in a panic. She says, Eddie, get every bit of water we have in my bag right now. This baby is turning bright red. He is so hot. I don't know what's going on. But I, and so she, she started putting water on him to cool him down. And then she looked at me and she said, Eddie, promise me if this baby dies in our arms right now that you will pretend with me that he is still alive. I can't bear the thought of having a dead baby in a place where I can't understand the language and won't know what's going on. Promise me we're going to fake it till we get home because I've got to get to see my mother. And so we did. And we prayed every hour. Would you please help him to not die? We finally made it to Springfield. And standing beside her mother and her sister Karen was Pastor Rogers. They had already prearranged admittance to the hospital. We took him from the hospital, from the airport to the hospital, and the medical team began to, to address the fact that his sex swallow breathed coordination wasn't there, and that's why all the, all the milk we fed him came out the side of his mouth, and he was, in fact, starving to death. And these people started to help, and they got, to, they got him to swallow. And pretty soon, within a week, he gained a pound, and we were rejoicing. If you've had a sick child, you know what it's like to feel that desperate. This man had that kind of desperation. By the way, just so you know, James eats very well nowadays. <laughs> he loves chicken and rice, Pringles, and Diet Coke. I'm telling you. He's a simple man, and he's easy to make happy. So this man, he decides, well, my little girl's dying. I don't care what's going to happen with my job. There is this man, Jesus, who has such power, and I see it, and I know my bosses are angry, but, like, I need someone to help me. And he goes to Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? Let's go. Let's go to your house. Second person comes into the story. It's a desperate woman. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, this is what she had in her mind, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now, this woman had a chronic illness. Uh, it was a, a, some sort of a hemorrhaging that was going on. And, and we get this detail, and she suffered because she went from doctor to doctor to doctor for 12 years. She used up all the money she had, and she wasn't getting any better. And furthermore, the nature of her illness with the, with, with the hemorrhaging that was going on inside of her made her 
unclean. She couldn't be with everyone else. She was an outcast. She was despised. She was never allowed to be in the synagogue and worship with everyone else. And so here, here she's desperate and she can't even go worship with everyone because they don't want her there. And it was even not right for her to be in the crowd on this day. And she knew it. And for her to come close enough to touch Jesus, that, that was considered almost a crime. Why would you do that? You're going to make this teacher unclean. But she risked it all, and she said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and touch him. I don't have to touch him. I'll just touch the hem of his garment. I love that statement, don't you? I just want to get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. And she does. You know what? The Old Testament tells us something about Jesus, about God, the nature of God. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He saves such as have a contrite spirit, a humble contrite spirit, a broken heart, a weakness, a difficulty. This is the nature of this God we worship. He comes close. He doesn't freak out. He's not disgusted or annoyed. He doesn't run away. He says, if you have a contrite heart and you come close, I'll be close to you. You know, I love these invitation verses in Scripture. First um, Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Look at the intention of God. He's not going to crush you. He's, you humble yourself before God that he may exalt, exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. In my experience, not everybody cares for me. But Jesus does. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In, in Hebrews chapter four, it's talking about the great high priest who is Jesus, and it says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You know, this is our first Sunday of the month. We're going to do communion and an extended time of prayer. And we're going to invite you to come boldly. Come boldly and let us pray with you about whatever in your life brings you a darkness in your soul, wherever you are desperate, come boldly. Why will you not come to a God who cares and is ready to help? This woman gives us this beautiful story of being desperate and deciding she's going to come to Jesus, and she does. Now, then the strangest thing happens, okay? Um, Immediately the fountain of, uh, of her blood was dried up and she felt her body and was healed uh, from the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched me? All right, now remember, the crowd is thronging Jesus. That means they are rushing to get close to Jesus. And his disciples know this and are experiencing this with him. And the disciples says to Jesus, as he, as he asked, who touched me? Right? 
You see the multitudes thronging you, and you say, who touched me? I mean, can you hear the tone in their voice? Are you kidding me, Jesus? You're asking us, out of the hundreds of people that are all around you and have brushed up against you, which one touched you? Well, we have no idea what you're talking about. How can we decide? You want a list of 150 people's names? Okay, I'm I'm ad-libbing at this point, as you can tell. That's the Eddie Lyons paraphrase. Now, remember this. In this passage, if we, we must always remember that when God asks a question, it's not because he needs more information. Did you know that? You know that Jesus already knew who touched him. He knows her name. He knows how long she's been sick. He knows her faith. She touched him. He knows it. And, but, he, but he wants the disciples to know it. And he wants her to know it. And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. And the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here's this, she's fearing and trembling because what, is, is he going to rebuke her? Is he going to crush her? Is, is he going to scold her? I mean, she's not supposed to be in the crowd. She's a woman with an issue of blood. She's unclean. She's approaching Jesus. I mean, he's the most popular, venerated rabbi at the moment in her area. And she's violating all kinds of norms. And so he says, who touched me? It's kind of like a kid who's always getting in trouble. And then mom says, who did this? And they're always scared because... They did. Am I in trouble again? Did you ever feel that way as a kid? Okay. And then Jesus says these beautiful words to her. As she's fearing and trembling, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." You know what Jesus, I think, wanted to do? He, he didn't want to heal her anonymously and leave her in anonymity. He didn't want her to live the rest of her life thinking that Jesus accidentally helped her and doesn't even know that he helped her. Jesus stopped and says, come here, I, I want to tell you something. I, I knew before I asked who it was, it was you. You, you know, I, I love you. I care about you. I value you, daughter, daughter. I have healed you. Can you imagine? 12 years of being ostracized, being a bother, being pushed aside, not being allowed to worship. And then Jesus responds with this. He also at this moment, makes a public declaration for all to know. She is clean. She is good. She is whole. The story of Jesus and the hope we have in Jesus is not about a religious system. It's not about, I get this question, so what religion is right? Have you ever heard that question? Well, which denomination is the right one? Have you ever heard that? 
You know what Jesus? Jesus is the hope of the world. The person of Jesus is the hope of the world. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that saves us. It is not this church. It is not a particular denomination. Jesus is our Savior. What we need to do is learn how to practice the presence of Christ, which means every day as we wake up and deal with the struggles and the joys and everything of our life, we do it in the presence of God. Because he cares that much, and he's that interested in you, and he delights in you. So why are you trying to do it by yourself? Um, there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they believe in God. He's out there somewhere. But then there are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And God is in here. And that's what Jesus wants. We need a God who is not just out there, but in here. I heard the story of a mother who was, uh, had changed um, what she was asking her kids every day. Instead of asking them, how was your day, she decided that she was going to start asking them this question. Hey, tell me, where did you meet God today? Where did you see God today? And she tucked her kids in the bed. One of her kids says, well, um, I, you know, I, 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 my teacher helped me today. It's almost like, you know, I think God was there in that moment. Another one said, you know, I, I was in the park and I saw this homeless person and, and I was so sorry for them. And I kind of feel like God was there in that moment. And one of them, one of them said, you know, I, I walked by this tree and it was full of flowers and it was just so beautiful. And I, I feel like that's God was meeting me there too. And then the mother would at the end say, hey, and this is where I felt like God was with me today. Practicing the presence of God. We do not have to live God, our lives on our own. We have a God who will involve himself with anything that's going on in our life. Why are you, are you depressed? Ask God. God, help me understand this. Do you, you, you having financial problems? Do you think you have to handle that on your own? God, what am I supposed to do? Would you please guide me and direct me? Would you provide? Would you help, would you help me save more, spend less? God, would you please step into my finances? Uh, maybe you have a wayward child. Oh, God, I don't know what to do, but I, I, uh, man, my heart breaks and you know it. Would, would, you, just, would you just do something? Whatever your deal is right now, do not forfeit the presence of God. This woman, against all odds, pressed through the crowd. Remember, she's sick. She's weak, pressed through the crowd in hopes that she could get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, and then it happened. And he did it intentionally. And she rejoiced, and her life was changed forever. 
Last thing that we're going to see is the, the desperation that is part of death. Uh, Jairus, um, remember, Jesus is on his way to help Jairus because his daughter is sick. Now, one of the things that Jesus came to do very clearly was to conquer death. I mean, he had come and declares he is the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, he shall live. And that's what he said. This is the verse we all need to memorize. I promise you, when death comes knocking, that's the verse you need. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's your death or the death of your loved one, or okay, Jesus says, I, my power is able to deal with physical illness, but I transcend physical illness. I want to just say one last point. When Jesus says your faith has made you whole, I have heard people take that out of context and turn it around and say, hey, you know, the, if you had enough faith, you'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And you know what? That is not what that is talking about. It is what all of a sudden, when that verbiage is used in an improper way, you know, you could be, you could be healed if you had enough faith. Well, now all of a sudden, the burden of the healing has shifted from God and his mighty power and his love and compassion to whether or not you're good enough to earn that. And I'm here to say that is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about the fact that this woman had demonstrated in that moment of desperation, risking it all to come to Jesus. It was her belief in Jesus and trusting in him is why she got she was healed now so she's healed in verse 36 as soon as Jesus um, heard heard the word that was spoken so the the, the, the people people come from his home and say in verse 35 while he was still speaking some came from the ruler from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said hey listen Jairus, it's, uh, it's over. Your daughter's dead. I can't imagine the incredible anguish of soul for this man. To start to try to adjust to the idea of his 12-year-old little girl. Dead. It's over. Jesus overhears this and then he turns to Jairus and he says this do not be afraid only believe don't be afraid I am the resurrection and the life oh I can heal but my power transcends even death so just believe let's keep going as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw a tumult, uh, all those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, um, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So what goes on here is that in, in that day when someone died, even a poor man would hire at least one mourner and a flute player. Well, the, the more wealthy you are, uh, you know, the, the more prominent you are, the more whalers you would hire. I, I think this guy, he was well-placed enough that they're 
several people in the house now fulfilling the role of lamenting and weeping. And so Jesus walks into this and then he startles them when he says, what's all this commotion about? Don't you know she's not dead? She's just asleep. And you know what? That was such an absurd thought that they all burst out laughing. I mean, hey, their job was to weep. Now they're laughing. What's going on there? It's because that's so incredibly impossible. And then Jesus says, I want you to put them all out. Everybody leave. And he brings the mother and the father and Peter, James, and John. Goes into where the little girl is laying. And, uh, you know, I, I love what he does. He, he walks over to her and holds her by the hand and he says, Talitha kumi. That actually is Aramaic. The Bible is written in Greek. The people spoke Aramaic and Hebrew and but the Aramaic was sort of like the day-to-day. It was the ordinary language of the day. And Jesus goes over in, in words that are exceedingly ordinary. He says, hey, little girl, get up. And she gets up. And then he says, hey, uh, get her something to eat. She get her something to eat. You know, there are people that are looking for magic words. You know, what's the right verbiage that we have to use to accomplish the healings that we want to accomplish? And actually, there's nothing there. It's just little girl. Get up. You know, Jesus was uh, the God who came. He was God, and he was heading in one direction. He was headed toward a place where there would be no more sickness or sorrow or crying or death. Revelation 21.4 says this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's where he was headed. This is the kingdom of heaven. He was going to make all things new. And in the desperate moment where death is confronted, Jesus delivers and gives life. Several years ago, I was in Boston with some pastors for a meeting about how we can better partner together um, for church planning that our country so desperately needs. Uh, And one night we went to Fenway Park to watch the Boston Red Sox play. Now, Fenway is an old stadium. I'm talking old. You know what that means? That means that the, the seats are really, really close together. And when you get into a chair at Fenway Park, the guy next to you is right up on you. Like, as small as you try to be, it's likely his leg is touching yours. So, I mean, you got to get used to that. It's all right there. And I remember I sat down by this guy, and, uh, I mean, we're in tight quarters, and, hey, how are you? Hi. He says, you from Boston? He says, nope, I'm from Salt Lake City. I came here to visit my son. I said, oh, really? I said, oh, great. And he says, man, too bad what happened last night. Uh, The night before, a woman had been hit by by a thrown bat. And she almost died. They thought she was going to die. She actually did recover. And he said to me, he says, man, that's too bad about what happened last night to that lady. I mean, you never know when your time's going to come. And then it's all over. I mean, there's, there's no more. There's no life after death. It's, it's just done. And he asked me the question that usually turns the conversations in my life. Um, so why are you in Boston? And what do you do? Um, 
I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm here in Boston. I'm at a meeting. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, and I'm speaking at a church tomorrow. And, and then he said to me, hey, what do you think about death and life beyond death? And I told him, I says, well, you know, I'm thinking I have very limited time to get to say something to this guy. I said, well, actually, um, there was a man who died and rose again and spoke about being prepared for life after death. His name was Jesus. Have you ever read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament? No. Hey, on the off chance, there's something in there about life after death. I think you should read it. Huh. Well, maybe I will. And then the game started. Jesus is declared in Mark's gospel as the God who was powerful enough to conquer death, to pay for sin, to make all things new. And the right response in our desperate times, always, is to run to Jesus. What does that look like? Jesus, I'm here because I got a problem and I need your help. He's never going to say, I'm sick of your problems. Leave me alone. He's never going to say that. He's going to say, tell me. Tell me. So we're going to have what we call an extended time of prayer. And I want to invite you. I don't know what you're dealing with right now. You do. Please don't just walk away when there is this incredible Savior. His name is Jesus who welcomes you to come and get his help. And I promise his help is trustworthy and he is good.